Welcome, everyone. Um, thanks for leaving your homes on a, and putting down the phones, getting away from a screen and coming for a deeper conversation on a, on a Monday evening. And uh, I'm Alex Sloan. Good on the National Library for hosting events like this. Aren't we lucky and privileged to, to live in Canberra? And speaking of privilege, that's what it's like for me to live in a country which boasts members of the oldest continuous culture in the world. Uh, my daughter Zoe is currently a university student based in Melbourne and as part of her study she was asked to write an acknowledgement of country and I thought I'd just read you a bit of it and to quote my daughter, I will begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples on whose lands I'm currently on in Canberra where my parents live, where I was born, where I grew up and where I feel like a local. Canberra means meeting place in the lo local Ngunnawal language. Ngunnawal and Ngambri people continue to live and travel through the Canberra region maintaining culture by connecting to land and through artistic expression. For thousands of years, other tribes used Canberra as a meeting place to learn their law, take it back to their own country and manage their cultures and landscape. The Yuan people, the Gundagaro people, the Narragoo people, the Wiradjuri people. I also acknowledge the Walbanga people of the Yuan Nation on whose family, on whose lands my family own a bush property and built a house where I often stay and feel a deep connection to place. I profoundly respect First Nations people's sovereignty, spirituality and deep connection to country and acknowledge my limited understanding of this as a non-Indigenous person. I thank them for caring for the land for over 65,000 years for all time since created by creator spirits. So that's just a, a small part of her acknowledgement of country but I thought it is beautiful in its own right but also goes perfectly with Tricia Dixon's Spirit of the Garden, which has been published by the National Library. Here's a couple of quotes from Tricia's beautiful book. I've never seen an unhappy-looking gardener. <laughs> we come, become most alive in the presence of beauty. It is a quality not simply relevant, but essential to our being. Beauty, the beauty of the natural world, leads us to a higher state. Reading this book, taking in Trisha's beautiful photographs, which I'm so glad to see showcased here, reading extracts from poets and other gardening writers, philosophers, landscape architects, fires up our imagination, perhaps imagination that awakens the wildness of the heart. There's a lot in this book and there's so much to talk about. So joining Trisha is Fleur Flannery, uh, who last month presented the conference adapting the adaptability of landscapes, discussing all the connections between landscapes, garden and ecology. Renowned Australian architect Philip Cox, who 40 years ago brought a, bought a beautiful bush property at Mara on the Bermagui coast where natural bush is the defining element. And Max Burke, for over 40 years, Max has helped rehabilitate and care for 30 hectares of coastal New South Wales by establishing a private arboretum of Australian plants. And Max is the immediate past president of the Friends of the Australian National Botanic Gardens. And Tricia Dixon is just one of our great uh, garden writers, garden enthusiasts, and please welcome them all tonight. <laughs> Uh, Teresa, congratulations on this on this beautiful book. Um, you've written many books on gardening, but this this one is different. Tell me about the catalyst for the spirit of the garden. What what is it? Well, perhaps it was kind of fortunate that the first one of the first books I did, I wanted it to be called "The Essence of the Garden" because I 
unlike all you good gardeners out there that you know actually put things in at the right time of year, you prune things correctly and you weed things and you rake and you do all of that. I kind of like to live life and I love beauty and I really love to also just be in tune with where I am. So I have an old, 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 old house in a beautiful, older, ancient, ancient, ancient mm. landscape. So whatever I do, I want to be subliminal to that because that's so overpoweringly, amazingly beautiful, the landscape. And so I don't want to be kind of um, just almost competing with it. And so for me, always, when I leave a garden, it is about the feel that it leaves me with. And it's probably different to Max, who's a scientist, and he'll be looking at what botanic species are there and, and know all the Latin names and everything. And it might be that, Philip, you'll be looking at the architecture. You're such a, you know, being a landscape architect, you're really kind of cutting edge design and everything. So we all garden differently. But for me, it's just like meeting a person. If they have a beautiful character, a warm heart, and a beautiful smile, they'll leave me with such a fabulous feeling. A garden that's just right and it really fits with its architecture, its surrounds, its landscape, it kind of honours where it is. To me, that really makes me feel good. And it doesn't have to be immaculate. It doesn't have to have amazing botanic species. It just really needs to be a fit for where it is. And so as much as I'd love a place at the beach, I'd love to have all um, native species. I've got an old place that was an old European garden. And so I'm kind of honouring that you, I gave the acknowledgement of country, and then you do quite a deep acknowledgement of country on, and of Indigenous custodianship. What have you learnt by reading the country through the eyes and experience of local Indigenous people? Well, I just feel such incredible humility, like in incredibly small, just tiny, for my little time that I've been at this property, that, as you say, 65,000 years have been people there so really whatever I do is just a blink in time and so it's really just to enter anything with humility and just um, with gratefulness and with grace for being there and just kind of honouring what's there and even honouring you know the Europeans that have been there for that 100 nearly 190 years as well because they're part of the history as well so really what I do as long as I don't kind of muck it up too much I just try and kind of just keep it um, just to, to bring in um, our other panellists, um, Philip, it's taken quite some time for many non-Indigenous -indig Australians to get their eye in about our own landscape. For a long time, the trend was to English country gardens. Well, I think that, <clears throat> that that's sort of arisen, you know, with our Anglo-Saxon... Um, foundation, <clears throat> you know, the nostalgia of the English garden, that people wanted to remember England, they wanted to remember the countryside, they felt dislocated from the greenness of the English countryside. And the early writings, you know, clearly show that the greyness and the olive green colours and the, the uh, ochres of the Australian landscape were very, very alien. It was really Elizabeth MacArthur was one of the first ones who um, saw the Australian landscape in terms of the English landscape. She just said, you know, the Australian landscape reminds me of an English park, but the colours are different, the forms are different, the textures are different. 
But she looked at it in the same way that Capability Brown or Repton or William Kent looked at it. They saw it as a pastoral parkland. And somehow that image dissipated after a while. You know, it was rape and pillage of the landscape as land clearing took place. And it was never done with the sensitivity of creating that great English tradition of landscape that the great parklands um, of England. <clears throat> so we've got a very, very haphazard landscape resulting from the, the, the attitude. But then, <clears throat> you know, that nostalgia has never disappeared. And I see parts of New South Wales, and particularly Victoria, which are very, very English. You know, everything reminds me of a, of a European landscape. And I find that, you know, it's very interesting. And I get, you know, worked up about it too. I love it, but I hate it at the same time. I think, you know, how disappointing it is that we don't really acknowledge the, the wonderful material that we've got to work with in landscaping. And why don't we see it in the broader sense of how landscape manifests itself on a macro scale that is very much a part of our psyche? Mm. Max, what do you think? Um, has it taken a while to get our eye in, to, to love what is here in this yeah. ancient? I, I guess um, I, in the early 60s, I read a book by Bernard Smith, who wrote European Vision in the South Pacific. and that really changed my view. I mean, Bernard doesn't say this, in, or didn't say this in the book, but I don't expect... I mean, if you can set apart... It's very hard to set apart the invasion of Australia, but if you imagine that the people who came, of course they'd bring what Philip said. How could you not bring your own intellectual baggage with you to uh, look at the landscape through English-European eyes? I mean, you've got to do that if you're an invader. Um, and so I, I think it's the worst thing was that it took us probably 150 and maybe 200 years to begin to look and think like Australians about... I mean, it, I'm not sure that 100% of people do so now, but, but I think a lot, of, lot do, and the, and the points Philip's making, people pick up and do actually look with Australian eyes more than they did. Many things, um, <laughs> but <laughs> on this, no, one, on this topic, um, I think something Margot Neal said at the Australian Landscape Conference really has hung firm in my head, is there is no nature without culture. And so if you think about how you all imagine nature, it comes from your, you know, from your backgrounds, from what you've taught, from pictures that you had at school. And I just think one thing about Canberra, having managed the parks and gardens here, um, there's that lovely limestone avenue and, you know, there's a memorial dedicated not, you know, far from you, Alex, that um, was dedicated by the Australian Natives yes. Association. Yes. Yep. yep. And I've often driven past that thinking about the... Um, it was planted under a works program so people, um, you know, out of the Depression wanting to have something symbolic in Canberra where they put themselves into it and they picked a whole range of different native trees and some have done better than others but it stands well it did stand at the time in sharp contrast to Northbourne Avenue which had European plantings and so our nature is a social is is a social construct and our nurseries you know it's it's difficult to go and just suddenly go wow I'm going to have this sense of Australia if your nature isn't that so it really comes back to what you've learnt 
how you perceive what you find is beautiful. Did you want to come in here, Trisha? Well, I think it's really interesting too because there was, you know, there has been for so long, is there an Australian garden? And I know, Philip, um, your place was actually farmland and you've made it into that, but next to the house you've got all your English plants and everything. And it's just like in your library there, you would have many, many books from overseas as well, and we eat our, our overseas food and, and wine and, and things. So I think we... I can't see that we should be made um, to be purist if we, if we actually <coughs> do have wider tastes and if we... Perhaps if the architecture doesn't dictate, dictate that or perhaps what's there. So I do think we have to be a little bit flexible too with what we do. Yeah, well, I agree with you. You've got to be flexible. I mean, our, our old uh, horticulture is an exotic one, really. Our legumes, our citrus, our trees, our, you know, the things that we eat and all the rest of it are, um, are exotic. So, you know, essentially a part of the landscape is going to be exotic, you know, to the cereals that we grow. Our farming uh, is exotic. So it's a, it's the way you deal with it and the way you you perceive the landscape and how you design the landscape uh, with exotics. My criticism, you know, the barrel gardens and all the rest of it, that they are entirely imitations of English gardens, and you know, you you really see um, a eucalypt in them. They're definitely, you know, the deciduous uh, European trees that have been used, and and it displays unlimited nostalgia in the gardens without uh, any reference, I believe, to what is essentially an Australian landscape. You um, talk about John Glover's um, Patterdale. Yes. And his, you know, that painting, which has... It's bursting with flowers, European flowers. But you say it was a kind of marked a, a bit of a moment in terms of the, the yes, history. Yes, so, so John Glover, who we all know is a colonial artist, and came out in his, you know, like at 70 years of age to actually move from England here in the early 1830s or whatever and then bought this place like way, way, way out, Patadar, which is kind of a long way from, <clears throat> from anywhere then. Um, and so he did actually, it's really interesting, people thought that he made the trees kind of look like oaks, but in fact in that part of the country they are, that's how eucalypts look. But he, there's one really famous painting that he painted and it's My Garden and Home and he's got every single flower that could possibly flower out at that one time, which they couldn't possibly be, because he wanted to send that back to England to all his friends back there to say, look, I live in paradise. You know, I haven't just gone to the other side of the earth and disappeared. I live in paradise. So that was a kind of bit of paradox as well. Um, but he was... Yeah, it's interesting. I have friends who live right near there, so oh, I know that valley really well. Isn't and they, it they live on the Nile River. Yes. And in fact, they didn't bother with a garden at all. They no, have they've landscape. just used the, the eucalypts oh, that flow down to the river beautiful. and in fact they're very worried about, they said we're going to lose them all in terms of climate change. Yeah, they're, which we they're, will. they're going to die. Yeah. But I just thought it was an incredible contrast because yes. they live right next door and they went, well, we don't garden. We but just see, that's coming of age because <coughs> that was, you know, when I grew up it was you literally, everyone did, everyone totally just kind of um, blocked out the landscape and now, thank heavens, everyone embraces and if ever I'm asked to kind of be involved in a landscape, I just said, just why would you kind of, you know, why would you wreck it by putting a garden in there because... Yep. Clue, what do you think? I mean, you know, it's given to us, this nature's given us a lot of things. 
It has, and um, I just want to correct Trish once. She said she's never seen an unhappy gardener, and I can be an unhappy gardener <laughs> because actually I've, in my garden, um, in yes, I've tried to grow plants that work in the extremes, and yet I actually gave them too much love and half of them died, so I was a very unhappy gardener. Tough love. Yeah, it. tough love there. But um, one of the things I was reading, um, and Trish, I don't know if it's the quote out of your book, um, The Spirit of the Garden, or something I was reading in the national... Um, lovely bookshop upstairs from George Seddon is he was talking about gardens are not just important because they're beautiful or that they make us happy or sad um, is that you know where you look at the popular areas of population in Australia and across the world gardens play a massive part in biodiversity and so one is perceptions of nature but the other is pretty fundamental that if we don't start to use these gardens to be just more broad than um, you know, something pretty that we look at, we really are losing biodiversity at leaps and bounds. And it's incumbent, I think, on all of us to try to do something in our own way, something that's not, you know, too hard to do. But just think about what we're doing, how we're maintaining our gardens, how we're using our resources. And as Philip was saying, you know, the things that he doesn't like about certain gardens, and I think it's just the antithesis of your work, Philip, is... You know, yours is very original and very, you know, bounded in sight. Whereas when you see direct copies of things, um, you know, you kind of go, oh. And so it's when you're copying mm -hmm. in a landscape that doesn't fit in. And really, Trish, when reading through your book, that's what I felt. I thought I could just imagine you pulling books off your shelves and taking in what, you know, what other people have said and just thinking about all the beautiful gardens that you go to and just going, okay, this is really gives me a sense and gives you a sense of how important they are. But I think that there's a common... What I loved about Trisha's book, um, there's a common thing of spirit of place, genius mm. Loki. Mm. What makes a garden have that quality where the spirit is uplifted or transported, you know, by nature itself or the composition? What is this thing? And it all gets down to you know, the 20th century philosopher's uh, phenomenology of genius Loki, which goes back to early Greek, you know, for the, the, the oracle, of the, where the Greeks found a wonderful place. You know, the spirits were there. It was a natural place where God was there. And uh, that tradition has been followed through, that you go into places where the spirit is there and it's very very hard to define you know your reactions to what what is that spirit that wells up in you that transports you because of that situation and sometimes and what i liked about trisha's book is that she uses a lot of vignettes of mm. those experiences of why mm. things worked you know in particular gardens that she's visited and I, th I think, Trish, you explained that reasonably. I, won't, I say reasonably well because <laughs> it's an impossible situation to describe the subconscious yeah, in yeah. people. What totally. is that subconscious feeling um, that expresses itself, that brings ecstasy or bewilderment or joy or whatever in what you're, what you're looking at? And it's a very, very hard thing to explain. But I, I think that the vignettes that you have in the book, you know, go a long way to, to revealing the nature of that experience with particular gardens. And that is what Genius Loki is all about. And it really applies to, 
you know, to the revelation of a situation by putting things in a situation that suddenly reveal what is there. And it wasn't revealed before. It might be a piece of sculpture, it might be a water element, it might be an, uh, a different sort of a, a building or, uh, or whatever. I mean, the Greeks were very, very famous at putting temples in the right place. And they're beautifully romantic, you know, elements within the landscape. And that revealed spirit of place. So I think that, you know, this is a very, very big subject and a very, very important subject that we, we analyse why things happen, what, what is in our subconscious that is able to be revealed by nature and by uh, landscape and how you develop it. And I think that's what we're responding to. I mean, um, Max, did you want to talk, consult the genius of the place in all? Um, is that something that you has been a sort of guiding? Well, I, I felt, I, I really love the book uh, and I commend all of you to buy it. It's a terrific book because I felt I was being continuously admonished for my behaviour. <laughs> And, and a, a bit of <laughs> self-flagellation is good at times. Um, and the reason Philip's touched on it in a sense there, because I, unfortunately, starting off life as a tra uh, being trained in science, I still find myself um, not looking for spiritual place. Yeah. I, I, I'll go into a garden, things. even the gardens that Philip yeah. doesn't like in barrel, is full of <laughs> camellias or something, and look at a, an extraordinary camellia and what I'm really interested in is that the genetics, epigenetics or in fact a viral thing that's causing that camellia <laughs> to have an expression of five different colours of pink at the one time. <laughs> Instead of just saying, wow, that's beautiful, I, 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 get, I get totally carried away by the, by the other stuff of yeah. why is that happening or why are those lerps eating that eucalyptus tree but not eating that one that's next door to it you know that all of those sort of things um bundle through my I mind i think you have to apologize for that kind of knowledge no no but but but, but trisha gives you a good reason to, to to not do that i mean i think and that is to lie back and enjoy it in a, in a way but i can i can totally understand where you're coming from i can't see it through your eyes but i have a brother who's um he's a professor of scientist and he was, we're all at Spring Ponds, my daughter's here and she lives in the family property. A lot of these photos are from there and it just resonates in this kind of lovely kind of feeling there. Anyhow, and one time we were there and my brother was there and he's, you know, really scientific and really, um, you know, he's just a beautiful, beautiful person, but he sees things very objectively and um, quantifi yeah, quantifies things. And so then there were some people staying there, some friends. Anyhow, there was one who had come in and seen a beautiful big landscape plan that I'd had drawn up by someone for my mother before she left the property, and it was this beautiful plan. And I found out that he was actually Richard Stutchbury, and he was staying in the Shearer's quarters, and I knew he was a landscape um, architect, that he worked with Aboriginal people, and he really, I could just tell that he kind of would get that type of thing. And so um, the conversation kind of got around to which I hate, so, Tricia, what are you doing? And everyone's standing there, my brother's there, and everyone's looking at me. So, what are you doing? What book are you writing? And I'm squirming, because I hate talking about myself. I hate talking about what I'm doing, because especially to write a book about atmosphere is about the hardest thing you can do. It's like writing about air. Um, <laughs> so, I just turned straight away to Richard, and I said, so, it's about spirit of place. Um, 
what's your take on that, Richard? And which he just said straight away, of course it's what I consult when I go to place to a place. And I just thought that's exactly, and it's what you've done there, Philip, so amazingly. And, and you have always talked about it. George said, which was in that book, because he'd always talked about it too and Dan Pierce and Thomas Doxiadis. But you, every time I've been down to your beautiful place at the Murrah, it's what you talk about and it's so tangible there and it really resonates. And I'm sure every person that goes there, they go away seeing gardens in a different way. Because I think for so long, and certainly any of us kind of my age that grew up the whole time with the Vita Sackville West, kind of the white garden and, and the box hedges and everything so... I don't know, it was kind of almost formulaic that you know gardens had to be like that. And it's just so good that now that we're really kind of thinking a different I way. I think George sort of liberated, and particularly that book of his called The Old Country, and yeah. the great pleasure of knowing George moderately well. And, and I think he kind of liberated us in a yes. way that, that you can actually separate the ideas of Just beauty from gardens. <laughs> Did he liberate you? <laughs> well, you can separate the idea of beauty from gardens. I mean, one of my most favourite interesting gardens is the garden that Derek Jarman created yes. in, in England. Yes. And it is anything but, but beautiful. beautiful. Exactly. I mean, it is hugely interesting. Yeah. And it's got almost no plants in it yeah. for a start. Um, it's rocks and metal and yeah. stuff. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, that you can create a place that's um, s astonishing without because don't you think that's that tapestry of person and yeah, place yeah. and their story and everything overlaying the landscape that brings up the kind of Well, that's a, the, the quote that you have of Philip in your book, and I'll come to Fleur in a minute, it says, nature has provided a canvas on a broad scale to interpret, to intervene, to explore space and experience, to reveal the genius of the place. It's like a puzzle to be solved. I love that. Well, it's very much so. I... <clears throat> You know, nature is, is there anyway. <clears throat> you, it, it, the canvas is already there for you. Yeah. And so what, how do you treat that canvas? What do you add to that canvas in order to reveal a, um, a situation that evokes spirit of place and you know, this feeling that you, you want to um, <clears throat> delight in whatever you know, material that you're using? So I think that's very, very important, and that's so much. <clears throat> so much is, um, I think, uh, destroyed when it, it should be preserved. Particularly in our, our native landscapes, they we, we tend to uh, not treat them with the same reverence that they should be. And thank goodness, you know, the ecological movement and and uh, climate warming and all this has <clears throat> at last, you know people are beginning to revere and to acknowledge and to appreciate the things that Trisha's talking about in the book. I mean, I think 20 years ago, you know, except for George Seddon and people like that, um, people didn't appreciate it. Gardening was gardening, you know, growing petunias. And, you know, that it wasn't uh, gardening in, in, the, in the more macro sense of looking at it, at, um, in a more um, largesse situation, which Trish is talking about in the book, which I think is fantastic. Fleur, um, what are gardeners if not land artists? What do you think about that? I am not artistic at all, I don't think. Um, <laughs> so I beg I, to differ. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
One of, I will answer your question indirectly. Um, I grew up in a rural town in Harden or outside Harden, and um, I didn't move that far away. I moved to Yass, um, but I just had such a connection with my home and my farm that that the connection to the land has always stayed with me wherever I've gone. Um, and I, you know, Alex, you started about acknowledging connection to country. And I think once you feel soil or look at farmlands, it was a shock to me in my mid-twenties to discover that I lived in a modified landscape. I thought that farming was a natural landscape, but then I was rudely awakened to it being a modified landscape. And so that kind of really opened my eyes up to what are the possibilities, what does that landscape mean, what was here. My dad, as a young boy, was an egg collector, you know, they must have done school projects. And so there was that naturalism, and I think with myself and my children, because our landscapes, our natural landscapes are diminishing and we have to generally drive to them <coughs> or something, um, our perception of nature is different and our perception of art is different. And so I don't think gardens are only art, but I do in terms of just a beautiful place. They're places, so in, you know, something, an art, something just to look at and go, wow, that's so beautiful. There's so much more to them. They just unfold and unfold because you look at the person that created them, you look at the landscape they're in, you look at how that person may have got plants. And I look at some of the very early gardens in Australia and think, how did they bring those plants into the country? Who was brave to bring them in? <coughs> how did they trial them? And so, you know, that's why I love gardening and I'm sure everyone here loves gardening because there's so many different elements that you can bring into it. You can, you know, people say, I don't have a green thumb. You don't need to have a green thumb to garden. You kind of just need to be interested a little bit in what happens in the natural world around you. And that brings your science in, that <coughs> brings your creativity in. It's just this endless thing of challenge or just sometimes reward and sometimes failure, which I think is really mm. great. And Trisha, you have a chapter in the book entitled Landscape and Memory. Um, and what we grew up with as a child has such a lasting oh, impact, doesn't it? I mean, Such a lasting impact. Mm. So I just remember as a child, my father was an adventurer and he'd always be just off, we'd be off canoeing, camping, bushwalking. So the endless... Um, kind of dirt roads and I'd be sitting in the back of the car and all I can remember is just these white trunks of beautiful trees and I never ever ever saw anything that wasn't beautiful. There were just these every tree that I see and even every drive I do now, I love to go on dirt roads but every single tree is just so beautiful and so it takes me 1000 hours to get anywhere because I'm always stopping and just looking and photographing but it does, it just really and I grew up clambering down the Shellhaven Gorge so you know, beautiful limestone kind of country and just a really, yeah, just, it's so strong within me. And so my, the property that I'm lucky enough to call home is in this valley and it's just, um, it's in the basalt plains which are naturally treeless and so it's literally, but I've got all this granite country which is all full of eucalypts and just to go walking up in there and just to look out onto it and mossy boulders and just so strong within my psyche. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I was thinking that you and I both were lucky enough to, to grow up yes, um, in rural Australia and we, we both, both rode, rode horses our horses to school. to school. But I was just thinking <laughs> this is the most urbanised country in the world. Most people grow up, most Australians yeah. grow up in suburbs. Mm. So where does that leave us in terms of... I think it still does that if you just even have a bowl of water that the birds can come in and they mm. can feel kind of that they can 
get into a little grevillea or you know a rose bush or whatever, but just you can bring the beauty of of Mother Nature into into your garden. But there's almost not one single garden I've ever been to where I haven't walked to the edge and thought that the natural is more beautiful. Like they always, I think that Mother Nature doesn't. No one does as beautiful a garden as Mother Nature, and so we just need to perhaps walk more in in the natural bush to really get a feeling of what is right for and us. Now we're all growing up what, in apartments, yeah. Philip. So. But, but what, what I liked in, in your book, Trish, was the um, I think you quoted Kidman by saying that Australia is an arid yes. country, and we only have moments where it's not. And your description of of your own garden in terms of drought, of looking at the lawn that is turned brown and you're looking you know, at the landscapes beyond which it's are silver yeah. and gold and grey and there's a relentless white sky, you know. And I think, you know, there's so much poetry in that and so much to learn that here we are, you know, the bushfire period of, you know, 2019, 20, you know, it was a great demonstration of trying to fight the drought, which had been on the south coast here for you know, almost seven years, and the trees were dying and everything. We, we, we have to learn to live with these yeah. conditions and not, not you know, force an mm. artificial situation that we've got to learn to appreciate. And I thought, you know, that chapter in your book <clears throat> where you talk about the appreciation of learning to live with drought, of learning. Don't irrigate, you know, yeah, don't be right. stupid yeah. and irrigate. You know, you should learn how to live with nature. I think it's a lesson that we've all got to learn, that we, we, we shouldn't, um, you know, try the impossible. When we, we've, we've got the opportunity of exploring the plant material and uh, the um, landscape qualities that you describe so eloquently, you know, in the book. It's so strange because um, we all love to go to Central Australia. We love to think of Africa. Everyone loves to think of Provence and the Mediterranean. And I mean, both you have been to the Mediterranean with me and we've seen Thomas Doxiadis and we've seen amazing, totally dry climate gardens where they don't use a scrap of water. It only rains for three months of the year. They're some of the best gardens we've seen, aren't they? And so why do we have this fixation with green, green, green and having to have green lawns. It is absolutely... It's nostalgia. Yeah, it's it is our, nostalgia. It's, what do you it's think, It's nostalgia <laughs> 200 years ago. I've put it down. This is a bit nerdy, I suppose, but I, I still notice that every time you see an adver advertisement for a, a, a trophy-type property in the yes. coast or inland or wherever, they'll always talk about average rainfall. We still haven't got Australians to think that averages are of mm -hmm. no interest whatsoever. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Variability is what yeah. Australia's yeah. rainfall is about. And it, sure, it might say on average it's 650 millimetres per year. Yeah, but it's plus or minus 200 yeah. millimetres. And yeah. it's, it's learning that variability, I know it, mathematics doesn't come easily to a lot of people, but, but it, variability is much more important than averages. And that's, that was a thing that people who came to Australia, as Philip said, as early settlers, they brought their baggage of Sussex or Kent or Saxony or wherever. And, and somehow or other, you've got to put all that aside because the difference between Europe yeah. and Australia is massive. In, in yes. Australia, where we sit on the planet means that we have massive variability. And that's... 
That's what we've got to live and the, with. And the Australian bush is messy too. Um, yeah. So, you know, I used to be brought up, you know, oh, that's a bad farmer because there were logs lying on the ground or whatever. And then my friend David Lindemeyer said that is actually crucial but, for yeah. biodiversity of, <laughs> yeah. of a whole lot of... Great. And I know my friend Dimity here, I won't embarrass her, but as you drive into her beautiful property, <laughs> it is full of beautiful silver grey old dead trees and branches that become sculptures in themselves and she's showcased her house to look onto this landscape and it's just a different way of it looking is. but also really important in terms of biodiversity yeah. 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 which has spirit of place okay <laughs> <laughs> take us there um, uh, I suppose where did you grow up Philip just, just by the way I grew up in the leafy North Shore of <laughs> Sydney. Okay. So, so you didn't ride your horse to we, school? You didn't, no, yeah. no. We, 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 we had a, a garden with poppies and stock and roses and uh, all the rest of it. So I, I have to... That, that's um, where I became jaundiced, I suppose, <laughs> looking at this stuff. So how long did it take when, when you bought this? Well, this we thing? had the bushland. See, the, the North Shore is very, very close to the bushlands of Karingi Chase and all the rest of it. So my childhood was really roaming the bushlands and the creeks and all the rest of it. And so <clears throat> it was very much away from the manicured, you know, uh, domestic gardens that my, my parents had. Um, because, I mean, they put, they liked the bush, but they, they wouldn't have it, you know, on their doorstep, you know, get rid of it, you know, let's plant mm. English trees. And, all of it. and do you think a lot of people have been frightened? I mean, I, I remember walking once out in our bush property with a friend and she said, it's always frightened me. Oh, the bushes, really? she, she actually yeah. found it. She said, I'm I've actually quite that. frightened. Do you think it's May Gibbs kind of with wild banks here, man? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is forest country and it's wombats and live, but, you know, it, it's quite forested and it's quite enclosed. Oh, yeah, but, the, but I the think th having, like Philip, grown up in the lower north shore of Sydney with, and escaping to little fingers of Lane Cove National Park that intrude into the suburbs and battling with Lantana and Johnson weed and all of those things that... Are, fill up those spaces where humans have slightly trashed the um, old residual forests. Um, there, there, are, there are scary places in amongst those too. I don't think, you, I don't think you'd, you'd be completely at home amongst them. I, I, I can remember going, you know, a young kid going into the bush and feeling absolute awe. Mm. Mm. You know, you'd go in you know, by yourself and you'd stand still and... Mm. Suddenly, the, you know, the presence of the bush mm. and the awe that the bushland had upon you, yeah. again, well, spirit of place, yes. uh, I just felt, you know, transformed by it. Well, that, that's the same feeling that I feel at Arthur Boyd's Bundanon that he gave to the, mm. the nation. And if you walk up to his amphitheatre, which I'm sure you've done, and there's just this palpable feeling. It just really is such resonance mm. of, of just... Incredible feeling, yeah. yes, exactly as you Flo, say. What, what do you think in terms of... You've gr grown up in the bush as well. And one of the views that I, that I think were life-changing to me as a child, I came to on an excursion to Canberra probably as an eight or nine-year-old and, you know, we stood at the War Memorial and looked onto Old Parliament House and that vista mm -hmm. I thought was the most life-changing thing like I can still remember that feeling going wow someone actually designed this and um, my former professor Ken Taylor um, 
I remember him taking me there as a young student and saying, the reason that you stand at one end and then you look onto old Parliament House, the new Parliament House, and then the hills and the sky is because you're looking up, 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 and you look onto the horizon and anything is possible. And, you know, that's just such mm. an amazing element to put into Australia. I mean, yes, its incarnations are from other, you know, France and other places where they've made those wonderful vistas, but it was really quite brave, I think, um, for, you know, a young country to do that and really to say it is the environment, it is nature that is paramount to all of us. And, and we, you know, if we take that thinking through to where we are now and to Trisha's book, it's just one of those things that I think we often don't take for granted, or we often, sorry, do take for granted the things that are often non-renewable, mm. earth, sky, water, they're all mm. our resources. And, um, you know, how do you explain atmosphere? Well, atmosphere is sometimes the feeling you get, but also what we can do with that, and that could be a view, or that could just be something in our own way, or looking around Canberra. I mean, Canberra, you know, the bush capital is kind of a acute term, but really some of those suburbs, when you drive around them, you know, the, the predominance of landscape is what makes this city the most beautiful city that you could possibly want well, to live in. Well, speaking of place, I mean, the, yeah. Griffins, the Griffins were deeply um, philosophical. Very much so. That, I mean, mm. their whole... This, this city... Um, I mean, many argue that, yeah. you know, we don't have the Griffin's proper city, but, there, you know, there are elements of it in terms of linking the hills, the landscape... And the I think that was... Even came to... Um, oh, sorry, after she came... I, I've just finished Glenda Corporal's terrific book on Marion. And yeah. Marion Griffin. And, and she was obviously totally captivated, totally captivated when she came. I mean, she was interested in, in it, but mm. neither she nor Wall had ever seen Australia. And... Um, the fact that so she did that design from but, Chicago, yeah, you know, but then, it's amazing. Then they, she comes and she becomes totally and utterly mm. captivated, though you're saying, by the Aussie bush. And indeed, in her darkest moments, when she and Wells treated so badly by the FCC that she escapes <coughs> to painting and drawing and goes to Tasmania and spends time with as a an artist, and then actually gradually weans herself off the landscape architecture and architecture and just wants to work on wants to work and does work for about 10 years, basically, as an artist. And, mm. and that's because she <coughs> fell in love with the Australian, particularly old-growth forests in Tasmania that she fell in love with. But, you know, we've got a, uh, a wonderful example in Canberra of Spirit of Place uh, in architecture, and, and, and that's uh, Jurgler's Parliament House. And then I discussed... Mm with Jurgler, uh, the book of Norberg Schultz's Spirit of Place, which he had read, the German philosopher. And that is the embodiment of what Parliament House is all about. And I think we are so lucky to have that building in the way it is. We could have had any other, yeah. you know, excrescence on, on, on the hill. But the way in which that unites, fits in organic and yet not organic piece of architecture. It's almost like a, a Greek temple. Um, it it's serves so many p purposes. But the, it's the landscape quality that, Im that embodies Parliament House, which is, is part of genius Loki. Yeah. And also, I think the amazing thing that was so clever with Canberra is that they made the upper canopy all eucalypts. And so 
if you fly over it just yep. it just absolutely blends into the landscape so they could have your english gardens have your you know your, your avenues of oaks if you must but the whole upper canopy all being eucalypts just really it's so clever, such a brilliant concept. And Absolutely. And it's yeah. interesting just when you were talking about safety, um, there are many things that amuse me when I looked after the parks and gardens in Canberra, and one was discussions about paths and hedges. But um, it's just interesting how people feel afraid of different things. And I often think the safer you make an environment, the less people notice things around them. So often, if you have something that's a little bit uneven to walk on, people look down or they look <coughs> side to side. But if everything's all manicured, you just, you just walk. You often don't yeah. think. And so that's why in looking at gardens and particularly <coughs> some of the interest or the images that you look, they don't just suddenly reveal. They're not just this big, woohoo, you're here. This is what it looks like. Here's my lovely, you know, beautiful lawn. You immerse yourself in them. Like you, there's, there's different scales, there's... Um, you know, views that you might, that the designer might want you to see because that's what they love. But there's other little interesting things that if you slow down a bit and, you know, have a little bit of complexity in there, it, it can make it a little bit challenging and, but, you know, it shows interest. And just my final point on that is I don't think gardens should always be safe places. I have one part that in my garden which has absolutely no shade. It's boiling hot, it's really hot. Because I grew up on a farm and sometimes being in those paddocks mustering sheep was really, really hot. And, you know, we would kind of always hanker for the shade. And so I only ever use that part of my garden in the mornings and in the evenings. And the light is so beautiful. But in the day, it's not, it's not designed to be where you'd sit in the middle of the hot sun. And I want it to be like that so people can experience that kind of change in feeling. And so that, see, what we saw was Thomas Doxiadis mm -hmm. on the island of Antiparos where there's no trees, so literally none of his landscapes had trees, and so uh, they weren't trees for shade, like there was one, one tree, I think, on Little Cedar or whatever, but there's just no trees, so they have other things, like might have a pergola for shade or whatever, mm. and so literally they were just going, it looks as though it's just the natural landscape kind of crept right up to the house, but yeah, we just, I think it's good to challenge sometimes. Um, and you have done that in your garden so cleverly because you've used really drought-hardy plants. You don't really water. They're no, I mean, we water for establishment. The other thing about my garden is um, there's lots of snakes in it. And not pet snakes, they actually do almost bite you. But again, you know, there's lizards, there's so many birds. I had someone out doing a bird study the other day and they were like, wow, why have you got so many birds here? You shouldn't have these types of birds. And it's all shrubs, it's mm -hmm. you know, mixed planting and things. And you, know, you can't obviously replicate that in an urban area. But I do think you know, there's ways that we can challenge our governments to be a little bit more sensitive, stop these kind of endless eat streets that you know, are just places to attract people and try to get some more resources and more thought into our parklands where... We actually, you know, Canberra's got so many beautiful parks, but really get some more biodiversity in there and get some more interest. Yeah, I can, you know, having 
hosted Chief Minister Talkback for all those years. Um, I was just in South Fremantle, actually, and walked along this street where one of the um, trees had grown right over the footpath and you went through a tunnel. It was just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. But I thought, ooh, Chief Minister Talkback and camera, they had that <laughs> chop back to the absolutely. fence line immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, yeah. we, and we just hear <laughs> of the Victorian government, you know, having a an amazing project linking up all their nas- national institutions through vegetation, not through these kind of sign, go that way, and just thinking about ways that we can look at our city a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Adam, are we able to do questions tonight? Do, do, I, we'll get a microphone. Uh, would you like to ask questions? Um, we can keep going here, but put up your hand if you would love to ask a question of anyone because on the it panel. Really, I wanted it always as a forum just for, you know, for just good discussion, so I'd love <laughs> any remarks, comments, questions, anything, because... We're not here just to talk at you. It, it just would just be lovely. Put your hand up and I'll, I'll make space for you if you would like to do that. There, Trisha, I'd also like to mention too, this book is... Um, there's so many things about this book, but as someone who hasn't read a lot of garden writers, um, I thought, oh, here it is. You reference yeah. so many... I thought if I wrote them all down, I wrote down the philosophers and I wrote... I thought, I'm probably set. You know, it, well, it's a good start for me in terms of, of, of a library. You did that on purpose as well? Well, it's just that I actually love literature. I just love mm. books so much. And so I think how, how can you actually write a whole book on atmosphere? So literally I want to draw on the brain's trust of all the, the fabulous people around the world, that's you know, that, that, have, that really could say it much better than I could. I've got a lot of so reading in front of me. I think we have a question here. So, yes, thank you so much. Um, it's been a, a great uh, conversation, so thanks very much for that. And um, uh, well, I'm, the, the idea of spirit I find very, very interesting. And what I also find interesting is that um, I don't know how many, it must be almost 100 years ago that Edna Walling discovered um, that spirit in Australian plants in the Australian bush. And it's just taken us so, so long um, to come around to her way of thinking. I mean, she was a real trailblazer and, and really um, just went out on her own uh, to try to create um, that spirit, which is fascinating. I'd, uh, so is that the, the question, why is it taken... Edna why, yeah, well, why is it taken... And Trisha's done yeah. a lot of work, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I've just done, kind of spent my whole life researching her and really I can see that she changed the face of Australian gardening because in the 1920s when she kind of burst on the scene, literally gardens were there to look at me gardens and they had maps of Australia and petunias and gerberas, you know, in the front lawn and everyone had to walk past and say how beautiful. But she wanted gardens to be places that you actually lived in and enjoyed. And she said the nicest person she ever met was the person who said she just wanted to grow landscape. So it was always about borrowed landscape. Even even in the tiniest little town gardens, there'd be kind of areas to explore. And she never had, if you even in a big garden, you'd never have the pergola right there. So you saw it straight away. You'd actually have to walk down this way and down there. And then you might find a hazelnut walk right at the end of the um, thing. You know, at the end of the garden, but she just did really change uh, the way we kind of looked at gardens as just kind of show places, to places to just relax and be in. The the other person who's forgotten is Rex Hazelwood mm. in New South Wales, mm. who advocated the growing of eucalypts with with various councils and things like that. He did. He, um, I think he he most probably had just as much influence as uh, Edna. 
but forgotten today. I, I don't think I it's think acknowledged. I think why Edna had the influence is that she wrote for 30 years in Australian Home Beautiful, mm. so every month, all those books, and then literally her photography was really as good as Max Dupain and, and Casno. Like, it was that really atmospheric, beautiful, never... She absolutely eschewed colour photography. It was all black and white. It was just really beautiful. So those books haven't aged. The philosophy of not watering, it was so far <coughs> advanced and not pulling down all the yeah. gum trees and and you know, really honouring our natural beauty. But I, I love going to Cruden and saying to Elizabeth Murdoch, <laughs> oh, Edna Walling did a magnificent driveway of Citriodora. She said, indeed, no, <laughs> nothing to do with Edna Walling. I planted all those. <laughs> what does it mean to you to have your garden now on the south coast? I mean, how... If we're talking about spirit and... All this airy, fairy... Oh, it's just a place for me to enjoy and other people to enjoy. Mm. And, you know, it's, 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 it's there for everybody. Mm. Yeah. So, on a daily basis, you... Not really, because I don't go there on a daily basis. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's been... <clears throat> I mean, my work has been big buildings and all the rest of it, and um, to break the scale of doing stadias and all the rest of it, and... Um, work in China and all over the place. Um, to go down to the south coast is peace. You know, it, it's it's communing again with nature, which is so important in anyone's psyche. I think you know the therapy is in nature. I really do, and I think therapy is in gardening. People, it's well known that people who have neurological problems and all the rest of it are uh, uh, get relief from being in the garden. Being, you know, with hospitals and things like that, having gardens so people can communi can communicate with them is highly important. So, well, I think a big thing you've done there too is, okay, you're you know world-renowned architect and you've done huge big buildings everywhere, but you've absolutely sublimated that whole thing to very, very less is more architecture there, which so sits in that landscape. So you're not trying to impose your whole, you know, will on that. <coughs> you've really actually. Um, you've done that very... Trish has been very kind. No, no, it, it's just <laughs> extraordinary. There isn't another place, really. It's, yeah. it's extraordinary how you've done that. And Thank you. But one other thing, Philip, I thought was very interesting, and you might know this. When you go to visit, when you go on a garden tour, you see the garden as is, and what you don't see is often the 10 or however many years in the development. And I think you and some friends bought that land, and it was a degraded farm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so... What people might see when they're there is, oh, wow, you're so lucky mm. you've got this great forest and you've got all these things, but it wasn't like that at all. Mm. And that whole no, we transformation... Had we had to replant yeah. uh, a, a great deal um, of it because it had been uh, turned... <coughs> in the, from the 1840s, it was felled, it was uh, used for agriculture, and it took 100 years of failed agriculture to finally... Uh, people gave up. And we were lucky enough to buy it, and then we had, it was the extreme task of rehabilitating and replanting, you know, the coastlines and things like that to get it back into shape again. But didn't someone say when you bought it, oh, you've got a pump there, oh, yeah. boy? <laughs> when we bought it at the auction at Bega, it was owned by the Catholic Church and the Darcy family, and um, and uh, they put it up for auction, and I. It, it, you know, through the National Trust, I was warned that this property was coming up for sale. Anyway, I, I was a, it went for ridiculously low price and I was a bidder and the, 
a couple of the farmers came over and said, you really bought a pup there, mate, it'll grow nothing. And I said, well, I'm not intending to grow anything really. Gross landscape. So uh, it shows you that a lot of our, uh, you know, landscape is failed, has been failed agriculture, and it should be restored back to forest and other uses that um, we appreciate. And on, sorry, just on Black Mountain, that was a whole reforestation project. Like when you look around Canberra, there was what I'd call an industrial scale of planting done in the early 1900s or 1920s, where they had these massive replanting programs to re revegetate the hills, which was just it's it's been an amazing insight, at, you know, from these kind of barren hills to have those beautiful blue and <coughs> black hills. Now, I'm going to put in a word for Dick Clough of NCDC. Yep when he was working with Sir John Overall here. He was the landscape um, architect uh, with the NCDC for Canberra. But he is one that, who did most to create the natural landscapes of Canberra. And I think that, again, we should be acknowledging mm. him mm. for the, the great work. I mean, he, he suffered people like Dame Sylvia Crowe doing a little piece of the garden in there and all the rest of it. But he saw it on the macro scale, which Griffin saw as well, mm. which was very important. That, and that's your legacy here. Mm. Max, did you have a take-home message for us tonight? Oh, only, only a, th a, a quick uh, addition to the unhappy gardeners scheme. Um, <laughs> um, four days you ago, if you'd, have, if you'd have seen me, Tricia, or the, to some more bones on that quote. Um, I was the unhappiest gardener in Canberra. I had walked out <laughs> in the morning and forgotten. Actually, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and thought, no, it's too cold to go out. But I'd forgotten to put the cover on the veggie pod <laughs> and, and in it, in my veggie pod, I had 20 of the most oh. beautiful young seedlings of a very rare eucalypt that oh, I was growing. No. And the possums had got in and browsed oh, them all no. off. Some of them might recover, but, but oh. and smashed all the pots and done. And, and I thought, why do I do this? <laughs> I mean, well, so there, is, there are unhappy gardens. There is always the great possum swap that goes on in Canberra, yeah. as we know. And I won't go any further on that one, yeah, but we all quite, know what I'm talking there's, about. There's quite a funny card, actually, in the um, bookshop that has something about gardenings and the punchline is and ask a man, you know, oh, oh, someone will be happy if you plant this, do this, and then ask a man to dig a hole for you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, on that note, thank you. Look, a beautiful audience on a, on a Monday night. Thank you so much. This is an extraordinary book, Tricia Dixon's beautiful book. Thank you to Tricia, to Fleur Flannery, to Philip Cox, Max Burke for this lovely conversation. I always say this, buy multiple copies of Trisha's book. Take a copy instead of a bottle of wine to your next gathering. Your friends will thank you and it will absolutely nurture their spirits in such a, a lovely way. But thank you very much for coming thank tonight. You to Alex. <laughs> thank you Thank you.